Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolb. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we get started, I want to kindly ask you if you will consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to All the Wiser. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you have probably heard this request many times. And here's the reason why. It's pretty much like when you read the reviews before deciding to buy something online or book a reservation at a new restaurant. In this case, people look to ratings and reviews to decide what podcasts are worth checking out. If you like what you hear on All The Wiser, and you think others will as well, we would really appreciate hearing from you. And of course, by subscribing, you'll know every time we have a new story to share with you. Now, on to today's interview with Kevin Hines. As a teenager, Kevin was outgoing and excelling in both sports and theater. At the age of 17, he suffered a mental breakdown in front of 1,200 people at his high school play. He was then diagnosed with bipolar disorder type 1 with psychotic features. In the depths of his darkest pain in a mind that was no longer his own, Kevin decided to take his life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Of the thousands of people who have jumped from this iconic bridge, only 1% survived. Of the 1% that lived, there are only five people in the world who can stand, walk, and talk after surviving the fall. And Kevin Hines is one of those people. Today we talk about all of the extraordinary circumstances that led to him surviving the jump. He shares his experience of living in psych wards, the common denominator of people who consider suicide, and how the simple act of showing kindness and care to someone in emotional pain can save lives. He also teaches us some new and modern terminology to describe mental illness. He calls it brain pain, which I personally love. Here's today's interview with a survivor in every sense of the word, Kevin Hines. Welcome, Kevin, to All the Wiser. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you, Kimmy. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, My name is Kevin Hines. I'm a storyteller, author, and filmmaker, and YouTube vlogger, and I try to help other people who are in pain fight it so they can stay here, so they can be here tomorrow and every day after that. Great. Thank you. Your early childhood, going back to when you were born, 
Can you share with us your earliest of years? Yes. Uh, I had a very traumatic infancy. Both my biological mom and dad um, had manic depression and they coped with that manic depression with drugs and alcohol. And thus they could not properly take care of me and my brother. And we were placed into foster care. And in foster care, my brother died. And I developed a severe detachment disorder from reality, abandonment issues that follow me until today. But unlike my poor brother, I got lucky. I landed in the home of uh, Patrick and Deborah Hines, and they would become my mom and dad and give me a a blessed and beautiful life, uh, partially because of how hard they worked to do so. Uh, They would adopt three kids from three separate families into one and make a melting pot of a family. We didn't look alike and people noticed, uh, but we we had unconditional love for each other. Uh, But even though I had this beautiful childhood, my, my, my brain pain would surface and I would have a devastating mental breakdown at 17 and a half on a stage in front of 1200 people. I would have a complete and total mental breakdown. And very soon thereafter, see my first psychiatrist and be diagnosed with the same brain disease my biological parents had before me, bipolar disorder. How old were you when you were adopted, Kevin? I was four and a half when I was adopted. Uh, it was uh, March, 17th, uh, March 17th, 1986. And I know your, your parents changed your name. What was your birth name? Um, <laughs> and do you remember anything? Because I think that's fascinating to experience a name change. My biological name was Giovanni Gabriel Prasad Ferales, and my name was changed to John Kevin Hines. I, I do remember the name change because when they were talking about making the change, I said, could you call me Michael? And they said, no, we're not going to call you Michael. It has to be something related to your birth name. And that's why I went from Giovanni to the translation, John. I want to go back to or, or this moment at 17 years old on a stage. Walk me through that day and the weeks and months leading up to that moment. So that day, um, well, let's, let's talk about the weeks and months leading up to it. I was, I was becoming more and more erratic, more and more mentally unstable, more and more unwell. Um, but nobody knew really why. And it was clear that I was having some kind of breakdown over time. Um, and my mental stability was not intact, but we didn't know what to do. And my family was caught off guard and had never dealt with this situation before. And in the days prior to being 17 and a half and having my, my meltdown, um, I, I was fighting with teachers at my school. I was fighting with students, um, verbally. I was, you know, yelling at them, you know, even getting close to threatening one of the students there. It was really a terrifying time for everyone involved. Um, And I was so unstable that on the night of the opening of the play I was in, I stood on stage. I looked out into this 1,200 person crowd and I believed that at any moment they were going to simultaneously rise and end my life. And uh, I was petrified. I ran off stage. I ran to the lobby. The theater director met me there and he called my mom. And my mom, when she came to see me, 
I'll, I'll never forget the look in her eyes because you, you could see that she saw the depths of insanity brewing behind mine. And she was, she was very worried for me. And very soon thereafter, I'd see my first psychiatrist. And that's kind of what happened. I had this big mental breakdown and would end up being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, the same brain disease both my biological parents had before me when they called it manic depression. Part of your life, you spoke to having these really supportive parents. Um, you were also, uh, and one aspect of you was an exceptional athlete, a really competitive athlete. On the outside, the world was experiencing you as you know, a great athlete, close-knit family. Was that the case? Yeah, you know, so many people after I attempted, after I mentally, after my mental health broke down, so many people were like, we never thought this would happen to Kevin. You know, we never, how could, how could this happen to a kid who was the, you know, the WCAL wrestling champion, his football team went to state, uh, the kid who uh, was on the speech and debate team, the kid who, um, you know, did all these extracurricular activities seem so, you know, quote unquote normal. As we know today, there's no such thing, but um, people were shocked. People were uh, extremely taken aback by uh, A, my mental breakdown, but B, then my attempt. You're diagnosed. What happens? Well, A, how did you experience the diagnosis and what happens next? You know, it, I was originally diagnosed with major depression because when I entered the psychiatrist's office for the first time, I was in a majorly depressive episode. I had already come down from the mania and he put me on majorly depressive medications immediately, which if you don't, if you know anything about that, when you, when you put on majorly depressive medications and you have bipolar disorder, you skyrocket into a manic episode, which is exactly what happened. He reassessed, re-diagnosed me bipolar type one with psychotic features, um, which is a mouthful for any kid to hear um, at, at 17 years of age. And it's something I don't want to hear. I, I didn't want to be flawed. I didn't want to be mentally ill. I didn't want to have that diagnosis over my head or have that label over my head. I just wanted to be the kid I, I used to be. And that kid was gone. He was disappearing without a trace. And it, it really threw me for a loop, that diagnosis. It, 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 it upended my view of who I was and what I was capable of and and I thought that this was going to be the rest of my life. I thought, I thought back then, this is a life sentence and, and I'm, I'm going to be sick for the rest of my life. And in reality, I would later learn that I could balance the diagnosis. I would still have the symptoms, but I could struggle through and, and succeed and, and fight the pain. And, 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 and really, I could, I, I could eventually thrive, but I couldn't see any of that back then. I couldn't see, as I always say it in my speeches, the forest through the trees. I can only see pain. Your specific diagnosis, and you and I have talked about, I have bipolar disorder as well, but there's a large spectrum. And your diagnosis, as far as the spectrum, is, is much more severe than what I have experienced. Can you explain the specifics of the diagnosis and how they manifested, what your mania looked like, what your depression looked like, and the psychosis piece of it? Sure. So the mania would look like me being so overly grandiose that I could do anything, be anyone, go anywhere. Um, I thought for a time that, I mean, I really believed that, that Steven Spielberg was going to show up at my house and offer me the next lead in his major motion picture, uh, just because, you know, I, 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 I willed it to be so. Um, I thought that I would become president of the United States at 18 by campaigning around my neighborhood. Um, I, I, 
I believed ridiculously grandiose things because of manic behavior. I would also eventually uh, blow through my trust fund, um, which was meant for me to go to college and pay my college tuition. And I would spend it all on frivolous, ridiculous things that didn't matter and, and my, my, uh, material things for other people um, uh, who were glad to indulge in my manic behavior because they got a bunch of free stuff out of it. Um, and when it wasn't, when I wasn't manic, I was crashing into this dark abyss of depression and pain where I felt that this black cloud was raining over my head. And I felt, I felt so alone, surrounded by a sea of people who love me, but I couldn't see that they, that they, they were there for me and that they cared. Um, and then when, when I was dealing with the psychosis, I'm seeing and hearing things that nobody else can see or hear. I'm seeing things like death himself hovering through my bedroom window with his staff and blade in his right bony arm and reach out his other bony hand, turn it upside down and his eyes would light to fire and his scald faces. He would say, come home with me. And that was devastating. And that would happen on a nightly basis from Monday to Monday, but I didn't tell anybody. So I did, I had all these symptoms. I had all these signs and I was generally keeping them to myself. I was internalizing all this stuff and I was keeping it away from my family so they wouldn't know the extent of my, of my struggles. I was in effect silencing my pain. And I think now today the difference is that I never silence my pain. I always talk about it. And why were you silencing it? Fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of losing the love of those who cared for me. Fear of being so abnormal that people wouldn't accept me. And so I just kept trying to hide it. And it was really in the time where I let my truth out and I opened up to the people who cared most for me that I was able to find the will to defeat these symptoms. Today we're going to talk, one of the things we're going to talk about is your suicide attempt, jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. In the days leading up to that, what did you see when you looked at your reflection in the mirror? Oh, man. Uh, the worst self-loathing imaginable. I hated every fiber of my being. I looked in the mirror, and it was as if I was looking at a different person. It was as if I was looking at a, a, second, a second me. And he would yell back at me that he hated me and wanted me gone, that my death by my hands was inevitable, that I had no choice, that there was nothing I could do. And I began to believe him. I really wish that I, at that, at that moment in time, I could have walked into my dad's room and asked for help because he was right there. You know, he had no idea. And again, the shame, the shame is what stopped you from getting up and walking into that room. Yeah. And he was right there. This he was right there. You. He was right there and willing to help, you know, right there and willing to, to be there for me. He just had no idea what I was going through. How old were you at the time of the attempt? And I'm interested in the the planning of the acts the the thinking through 
the, the, the research, and that feels a little bit weird to ask, but the days leading up to it. The, 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 I wouldn't call it a decision. The compulsion to dive on my hands off the Golden Gate Bridge only really occurred the day before. Um, that was when I, I made that, that I wouldn't even call it a choice because it was, it felt, it felt like it was made for me. Um, by this voice in my head. And I, I had written a note in my notebook, wrote a note to my mom and my dad and my brother and my sister, my best friend, Jake, my girlfriend at the time. I told them how much I love them. I asked for their forgiveness. I, I, I told my friend Jake in the note, you'll find another best friend, which is ridiculous. Um, and my rational way of thinking was winning the day. And I put that note in my shoulder bag and that shoulder bag by the door. At six in the morning, I entered my father Patrick's room. He lie there sleeping, wearing his breathing apparatus, his CPAP machine. I startled him awake. He looked at me and he said, Kevin, what's wrong? And I said, nothing, dad. I just wanted to tell you that I love you. And in my mind, it was for the very last time. My dad looked at me. Um, and he said, Kev, I love you too, but it's six in the morning. I don't have to be working until nine to go back to bed. I really wish that day I had said to my dad, dad, I need help. I'm having suicidal ideations. I don't know what to do. I need help now, which is what I do today. But back then I didn't have that wherewithal or the ability to fight those voices. Eventually my dad drove me to city college where I was attending and I dropped all my courses except one. I got on a muni train and I went out to a muni bus. It's a municipal railway in San Francisco. And I got onto a bus that would take me out to the Golden Gate Bridge parking lot. I remember being on that bus crying like a child, just sobbing in tears, hoping, wishing, and praying that one person would see my pain and say something kind or compassionate. And instead, as I yelled aloud on a crowded bus filled with people, leave me alone, but I don't want to die. I'm a good person. Why do you hate me so much? What did I ever do to you at the top of my lungs? The only person to react to me was a guy to my left who said to the guy to him while pointing at me, what the hell's wrong with that kid with a smile on his face? And that really did, did it in for me. And everybody got off the bus at the Golden Gate Bridge parking lot, but me, and I'm still hoping that the driver will see my pain and instead he says, come on, kid, get off the bus. I got to go. And I walked out and I walked across the walkway, the Golden Gate Bridge. And I paced back and forth for about 40 minutes crying. I picked a particular light rail. And that's when a woman from my left approached and asked me to take her picture in an Eastern European accent. And I took her picture several times. And at that moment, when she walked away, I said, absolutely nobody cares. And I was wrong. Everybody cared. Literally everyone who knew me cared. My, my brain wasn't allowing me to care. It was trying to kill me as I desperately tried to cling to life. And, and I, um, I'm just so grateful that my actions didn't work. That they didn't, you know, 99% of those who've jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge will never, ever 
be able to tell their stories. I know you've talked a lot about what may have stopped you and that any small act of kindness or compassion or being seen in your pain may have stopped you from jumping. Why do you think as strangers, if we see somebody in physical pain, we're so prone or likely to stop? But when you see someone in emotional pain, people often don't. I think it comes right down to fear of the unknown. What is this person going to do if I try to help them and they're emotionally unstable? That's the thought that runs through most people's minds. For me and my wife, the thought that runs through our minds when we see someone emotionally unwell is how can we help immediately? What can we do to help that person get to the next moment? Um, but we do that because, because we lived it. And I think that people fear someone's potential reaction to the question, are you okay, when they're obviously not. And that's something we as human beings need to get over. So there was a 16-year-old young lady, a girl, about I could assess, and she was stepping on and off the curb in San Francisco in front of moving traffic. And I I, I immediately immediately thought I knew what she was doing, uh, potentially ready to, to, to leap in front of a car. And I just, I, I looked at my wife and she said, you're going to go talk to her, aren't you? I said, yeah, absolutely. And I walked over to her and I stepped in front of her. I said, hi. And she goes, you know, she was taken aback. I said, hey, are you okay? You, you look like you're not doing so well. And she looked at me and she goes, why do you care? I said, because you're human and so am I. And she said, I, get, get away from me. And I said, no, I, I'm a little worried about you. You look like you're about to walk in front of traffic. Are, are you about to walk in front of traffic? And she just, then she started crying more. I said, tell you what, you can do all that, but why don't you just sit down with me over here on this, there was a ledge area of, of concrete. Sit with me over here and tell me what you're going through because you're not alone. And you, and whatever you're going through, you can get through it. And she was like, she was just so dumbfounded that I stopped her and taken aback that she actually sat down with me. And she just told me her story. She didn't get into great detail, but she told me, how devastatingly suicidal she was. And we talked and we talked. And I, and I said, is there someone I can call for you? And she wouldn't allow me to. I said, could you, at the end of the conversation, I said, do you realize, because I, I told her, I told her, then I told her my story. And I told her what I did and how I survived and how I found a great life and how this woman next to me is my lovely wife, Margaret, and I have a beautiful existence. And that, and that, and that, and I told her all the things I would have missed, you know, had I taken my, had I died off the Golden Gate Bridge. And she smiled. I said, listen, I need to know you're going to, you're going to be safe today and, and tomorrow. And she goes, I'm not going to do it. And she said, thank you. And we parted ways. And uh, who knows what happened after that. But in that moment, I know that when I turned back around, she was getting on a, a, a bus to, to go 
either back home or somewhere safe. And I think that's a win. You know, it's like if we just tried as human beings, as, as, as our brothers and sisters and individuals keepers to be more kind to people in pain, we could do a world of good for people who are going through that kind of a struggle. You have no idea how your kind words, compassionate touch or giving hand could alter the course of a destiny forever in a positive way. You have the ability to walk up to someone in mental pain and give them hope for the first time in a while and potentially help them stay here, to be here tomorrow and every day after that, just just through a simple act of showing you care. They are one of only three things proven to actually reduce suicides. Showing you care, reduction of access to lethal means um, are two of the things that do that. And people have no idea how valuable their kind words can be to someone in emotional distress. So on this day, there is no act of kindness, outward act of kindness that happens on the bus, that happens as you're taking the picture of this woman. What happens after you take her picture? You know, she, she hands, she grabs her camera, she walks away. And I said to myself, absolutely nobody cares, which was the furthest thing from the truth. And then the voice in my head screamed, jump now. And I did. And I fell 220 feet, 25 stories at 75 miles an hour in four seconds. And in those four seconds, the only words in my mind were, what have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. I hit the water, went down 70 feet, opened my eyes. I was going the wrong direction. I could not feel my legs. I swam to the surface. Uh, my right arm was wrenched. I mean, it was in a great deal of pain. Um, I had shattered my T12, L1, L2 lower vertebrae into shards like glass. I missed severing my spinal cord that day by two millimeters. I broke the surface of the water. I bobbed up and down in it and I prayed, God, please save me. I don't want to die. God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake. And I, I really believe you heard me. A woman driving by in a red car who saw me jump over at the moment of my attempt called her friend from her car phone in the year 2000 in the United States Coast Guard. The only reason the Coast Guard got to my position within less than the time I would set in hypothermia and drown was because of that woman's phone call. It was just, that was a three-minute window. In the water, something began to circle beneath me. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I didn't die off the Golden Gate Bridge and a shark's going to eat me. And it just kept circling beneath me, bumping me up. No longer was I wading in the water or struggling to stay afloat. I'm now lying on my back atop it, being kept buoyant by this creature, thinking to myself, this is one hell of a nice shark. And it turned out it was no shark at all. Uh, a man named Morgan McWard, who was on the bridge that day with his mom, wrote into ABC News when I was on there and said, Kevin, I'm so very glad you're alive. I was standing less than two feet away from you when you jumped. Until this day watching this show, no one would tell me whether you lived or died. It's haunted me until right now. By the way, there was no shark like you mentioned and there was on the show, but there was a sea lion and the people above looking down believed it to be keeping your body afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you. And it, when I got to the hospital that day, 
one of the foremost back surgeons on the West Coast was leaving for the day as I was entering. He opted to do me a solid and stay and do my back surgery, the first and only of its particular kind. He invented it for my situation and saved me the ability to walk, stand, and run. And only five of the 39 Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors get to stand, walk, and run. They, they call us the most exclusive survivors club in the world. There's a book of the same name by Ben Sherwood. Um, I always say in my speeches that I get to be here. And getting to be here, in my opinion, is a privilege and a gift, no matter the pain you're in. And I'm in a lot of pain. I'm in two forms of chronic pain. Uh, my back pain from my metal plate and cage uh, and pins. Um, and my pain from my skin disease that I have that uh, comes in waves. It's a, it's a bit of a nerve and skin disease that shoots excruciating pain from my bones through my skin uh, on a semi-regular basis. I came to a place where I, I realized that pain was inevitable, but suffering was optional. And I've suffered, I mean, I, I, I've never suffered a day in my life. Um, I've been in pain a lot. I was born in pain in a crack motel in the Tenderloin in San Francisco to two biological parents who, after they had me, were on drugs. But I've never suffered a day in my life because I've been given this gift of a second chance. And so I maintain my well-being even inside all this pain, including my brain pain, by recognizing that my pain can defeat me or I can let it build me brick by brick from the ground up. And if I let my pain build me, nothing can, no, no, no mental illness can destroy me. To, to give the context of you being one of five, how many people have lost their lives from jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge? So the bridge directorate would like you to think that it's 1,800 people. But according to Marine Corner, former Marine Corner, Ken Holmes, and according to the bridge patrol officers of the past, the number is more like 2,000, 3,000 or higher for all the bodies washed away to sea on the opposite side of the San Francisco side and all the bodies that are eaten by fish to the bone. So for the number they're giving us, it's farly reduced from, from the truth, um, largely reduced from the truth. And of those two, 3,000? Yeah. The number of survivors? So of those two, 3,000, only 1% have survived. Uh, exactly 39 individuals have survived that fall. 25 or so remain alive today. Many have died of natural causes of old age. Um, of the 25 that remain alive today, um, 19 have come, come forward after I did to say they all had the same instant regret that I did. And of the, of the 25 remaining alive today, only five of us can stand, walk, and run. Only five of us have regained, have regained full physical mobility. It's amazing. So it's, um, it, it's just a huge blessing, I believe, for us to be alive and to be able to move through life like it almost didn't happen physically, you know? Um, and we, on this podcast, had an incredible conversation with Kevin Briggs. Um, uh, yeah, he's amazing. He was my um, case officer. Really? Oh, yeah, he was. That's incredible. He came to the hospital um, to see me and he really believed that he was going to come to a body with a sheet over it. Uh, he, thought he, was coming, he thought he was coming to ID my body. And he walks in and my father was there already. And my dad's kind of a tough, gruff kind of guy. And, and my father goes, and I'm in a bracing structure. Like I'm, I'm all, all jacked up. And he goes, Kevin, 
shake this man's hand. And that's just the way my dad is. And Kevin remembers, we used to speak together all the time. Kevin remembers uh, that I had a firm handshake even after my attempt off the Gongate Bridge and being in a bracing structure. I'm fascinated as interesting that you say many of the survivors share this experience. How long were you holding on before you jumped? Well, I wasn't holding on. I, I just was standing over, leaning over the rail and then I ran back and I catapulted myself over the rail. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hold on to the ledge like some people do or hold on, hold on to what's called the cord like some people do. Um, I threw myself over the rail into free fall. Um, but it was just that millisecond of free fall that I had that instant regret and wanted to reach back, but it was too late. And did you change? I read you change the physical position of your body because yes. of that instant regret. Can you explain that? Yes. I was falling head first, which means I would have died. And I, I cognitively threw my head back and ended up landing in a position that is the only way you survive that fall, which I'm not going to repeat because I want to give people ideas. But um, I accidentally landed in the only way you can land to survive the, the Golden Gate Bridge jump. And why do you think you chose the Golden Gate Bridge? I feel like it almost chose me. It was a four-foot rail. It was ease of access to lethal means. And like I said earlier, we know that one of the only ways to reduce suicide is the reduction of ease of access to lethal means. If we can take away the lethal means, we can give people time and we show them we care. It has this double whammy of giving them the ability to see they, they potentially have hope or a purpose. What do you remember other than your dad telling you to look Kevin Briggs, Sergeant Briggs in the eye and shake his hand for a minute? <laughs> yeah. 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 What do you remember about the first conversation with your dad? Oh, man. This is a man who is the toughest Sunset Irishman I know next to his, un his uncle. May he rest in peace, Kevin Joseph Ryan, who we're both named after. Um, this is a guy who played 20 years of ice hockey as the goalie with no mask, okay? Um, that's that kind of guy he is. And I'd never seen the man cry. Not in 19 years of my life. Never seen the man cry. And he walks into my room and just waterfalls flow out of his eyes. And he comes over to my left side. He puts his right hand on my forehead and says, Kevin, you're going to be okay, I promise. And he couldn't make that promise. They didn't even know if I'd live through the night. Um, but he made it anyway. And it helped me. It helped me feel like I could survive this. Um, and he just stood there crying. He actually, when, when the orderlies came in, these two giant steroidal looking orderlies came in um, to uh, physically remove my father. They said, sir, you can't, you can't be here. It's uh, visiting hours are over. He said, I'm going to stay. Please get me a cot. They said, no, so you don't understand. We can't have you be here. There's no, there's rules in the hospital. No, no, no family after visiting hours. He said, get me a cot. And they kept pressing. He said, look, I'm a third degree black belt in judo. You can do one of two things right now. You can get me a cot or you can get me a cot. And they brought him this little, you know, like sleeping chair that they actually had. And he slept in that room with me for four weeks. He didn't shower. He didn't shave. He didn't change. He had come straight from his office that day downtown and he was just there for me. And it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, my mom arrived the first day and she's the most optimistic woman on the face of the planet, totally the opposite of my dad. And uh, 
And she came in and she goes, well, Kevin, I guess God wanted you to win that Oscar smiling from ear to ear. And I was like, mom, I did high school theater. Calm down, you know? And, (laughs) um, but, but then my brother came in and, and he was 13 and he was devastated. And I didn't realize until that moment that my brother actually had looked up to me for a long time. I had no idea. He walked in, he goes, how could you do this to us? We love you. I hate you. And he walked out. And he and I haven't had the same relationship since. Um, you know, it's what I did affected every single person I'd ever come into contact with in some way. They say that the ripple effect of suicide is so vast that for every one death by suicide, at the very least, 115 people are directly affected. That's not even to count the, the ter- secondary and tertiarily affected. Um, that's not even to count that when you get older and if you have kids and then they find out that effect, you know, it's, it's generational, it's generational by far. And it is, it is so sad to see families riddled with suicidal ideation and depression and attempts and deaths because there's such a, they're, they're those families that have had, have had different generations of suicide. Um, there's a faction of them that is so broken. Um, and so prone to it, uh, and it becomes an option. Uh, the same thing goes for when a, a, a death happens at a, at a high school, and then several other deaths happen at the high school. It's not necessarily a contagion effect. We know very little about contagion. What it really is, is what, when, when a, a child or a youth dies by suicide in a high school, um, um, and then other ch- youth die in that same high school, or even teachers or even parents, but what happens really is all these other people who are in similar kinds of pain, they're voicing that pain by those attempts. Um, and they're showing that they were in that pain, but they're not talking about it first. So that's my purpose. That's my life's mission is to go around the world to high schools, colleges, military bases, conferences, and share with them my pain, but do it in a way that elicits them to share me with, share me th- theirs what was your path to healing? And I know you're still on on your journey and yeah. to some extent always will be. But after you are released um, from the hospital, what is your initial path to healing? My 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 path to healing is ongoing and 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 always continuing, but um I, I learned tools to better balance my brain health, such as eating healthy foods most days exercising every day I can, um, reading everything I can about bipolar disorder, uh, sleeping properly, um, taking my medication with 100% accuracy every day without fail, uh, using art therapy and music therapy to help balance my sleep patterns and, my, and using med- meditation as well to help me stay stable. I do all of these things and so much more. And you can find my entire regimen on youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, because there's uh, a playlist called The Art of Wellness, which is 12 three to five minute videos on how to better balance your brain health um, that we created uh, with one of the best suicidologists in the field, Dr. Daniel J. Reidenberg, who was who edited the program. I, I really don't like talking about mental illness as in calling it mental illness. Mental is a negative connotation of a word already. Nobody wants to be or hear that they have mental illness. I like to talk about it in the, in the way that it causes brain pain. Everybody can relate to your brain being in pain. 
If your other organs were in pain, you'd go to the doctors. If you had liver, heart, lung, or kidney disease, you'd go to the doctors, you'd get assessed, and you'd find a treatment. So why can't we just be honest about our brain pain so we can always survive it? I love that. I'm going to change my language. <laughs> um, I know in part of your path of healing, you, I believe it was seven psych wards. Is that correct? Now it's seven nine. Days. Nine psych wards days. Nine psych wards. What is the experience of those stays and sort of, I guess, in a, in a snapshot, because I, I think most people don't know what that looks like and what is the impetus to check yourself in? So those stays um, were both beneficial and terrifying. Um, I've been assaulted in psych wards. Um, I've been attacked in psych wards, um, punched in psych wards. Um, but I've also learned a great deal in psych wards. I've learned that I am supposed to be here, that I'm a beautiful person, that I deserve this life until my natural end. I've had great staff who helped me get to that place. They helped me understand that they serve a purpose, even if they're stressful. Um, most psych wards aren't built for people like me in the sense that you have a contingent of the staff that loves what they do and does it for the right reasons. But there's just, uh, there's another contingent of the staff, like in any other profession, where people are dead into their job, they're just collecting a paycheck, and they treat you very poorly. Um, and that's the juxtaposition you experience in, in most psych wards in this country. I appreciate the, the staff of psych wards that look at you and go, I believe in you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you that belief in you so you can overcome what you're going through. And, and I'm going to let you know that no matter what you do in the psych ward, I've got your back. Those, those type of, of staff members, of, of counselors, of uh, case managers and psychiatrists and psychologists, they're the best kind because, and the, and the nurses, of course, um, they help you um, feel that you have potential again and that you can find that purpose so you can survive. Yeah, and an acknowledgement to your commitment to healing. Um, yes. And caring for your, for your brain. When did you start sharing your story and why? I, I've heard you talk about the first experience, which I'd love for you to share as well. But when did you decide to start sharing and why? I decided to start sharing my story because two clergymen in my life, one was a Franciscan friar who was at my psych ward stay, the first psych ward I was ever in after my attempt. And he, when I said what I had done, he said, kid, when you get better, you ought to talk about this. And I said, about what to who? And he said, you'll see. Every day this guy would come in. Every day he'd pray with me. Every day he'd say, when you get better, you've got to talk about this. Every day I would ignore him. And then uh, on the last day, he said, kid, I expect you'll talk about this. And I was like, okay, buddy, sure. And I left and I, I went to church with my dad uh, a few weeks later. And the priest comes out and he says, Kevin, how would you like to come and talk to our seventh and eighth grade class about your experience this Good Friday? I said, Father, I wouldn't have a speech and I wouldn't know what to say. And he said, and my father shoved me forward and said, he'll do it. And, and so I go on Good Friday and I read this speech from the page while shaking and dropping page by page to the floor, holding my cane, wearing my back brace, thinking, who is this helping? And I get 120 letters in the mail from 120 kids two weeks later. And six of those kids were actively suicidal. And because we, we were able to screen those letters before they got to the 
the, the teachers were able to screen the letters because they were minors. Um, they were able to get those kids the help they, they deserve and they're alive today. And ever since then, we decided to, to share our story, me, my dad, my family, my wife, uh, as often as we can with everyone we can. Um, and we're not going to stop. The art and science of storytelling makes it very clear that if you tell a story of, of adversity and struggle and, 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 and devastation, but you follow it up with triumph and success and recovery, you actually have the transformative effect on helping to change a person's life who's listening because of the way their brains sync up with your story. It's fascinating. So the, the work I do is science-based, evidence-informed to change and, and even save lives. I don't claim to save lives, but thousands of people around the world have told me I have saved their life uh, through social media posts and through letters to me. I'm now even getting letters at home. I believe that, that they hear the story, they relate to the story, then they go save their own life. They do the work to change their destiny. And that's how I see it. I see if we can all be stewards of change for people in mental pain, that's, that's the goal. What is the common denominator of people who are suicidal? Oh, it's, it's, it's simple. I've been talking about this whole speech. The common denominator of people who are suicidal is an epic and unrelenting lethal emotional pain. It is a brain pain that is like no other pain in the world. It's 300,000 times worse than any physical pain you can ever experience because it's so tormenting because it is so invisible. And I think the common denominator is that epic brain pain that people can't fathom, don't understand, don't like, don't want, don't need. And, um, and then the people around them don't know what to do when it happens. What do you think is the most common myth or misunderstanding about suicide? Oh, the most common myth about suicide is that it's inevitable. If someone's thinking about it, there's nothing you can do. That is the furthest thing from the truth. We, we, we want to shift people's thought processes to there is a lot you can do for people in suicidal pain. And what are those things? You can, you can, we have to stop being the bystanders that don't reach in. We can't wait for them to reach out. A lot of them are not going to. Even if you don't see the pain on their faces, constantly ask the questions to those you love. Are you suicidal? Have you made a plan to take your life? Is this something you're considering? I'm worried about you. I care about you. I love you. Um, With kind, compassionate eyes, a complete lack of judgment, total empathy, ask them what they need from you and how you can meet them where they're at to make sure they're safe today, tomorrow, and every day. I think like many things in society, we evolve and language changes. And I know, I think the language and narrative around suicide and mental health, and you spoke to this, is changing. And I'd love to be able to inform people who are listening sort of the best way to speak about it. And I I also know and there's been these high profile suicides with Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade that actually speaking the specifics of the act can be hurtful, as curious as people are about that. Can you speak to the language and terminology? How, how can we talk about this in a healthy way? Yeah, no, it's really, it's really pertinent that you bring that up. Um, first of all, we can say died by suicide just like one would die of any other disease, any, any other organ diseased, uh, instead of committed suicide. Committed suicide is like a crime. It's like something that someone's doing that's bad and horrendous and like they committed adultery or they committed murder. We die by suicide just like we would die of any other organ disease. That's the first thing. Um, I, I would say a really good, important one to use is brain pain. 
just for relatability, to show that it's tangible, it's real. Your brain is the single most powerful organ you wield. It is mostly on automatic mode. It controls every inaction, an action you take, every decision, an indecision. For lack of a better term, if your brain is malfunctioning, there goes the rest of you. So uh, those two really are my go-tos for how to change the conversation and change the narrative and shift the language so that it's more accepting of people in that kind of pain. And what about people talking about the specific act? That, that's hurtful in a sense, correct? Yeah. So talking about the method is potentially dangerous if you're leaving the people with pain, if that's all you talk about. If you're just talking about the method and the attempt and there's no kind of recovery aspect to it, for, for example, uh, they've done a study on my story. It's uh, a study that took the better part of two years to complete and and it's it's utilizing people from all over the world who've, who've heard the story. So uh, if you can change the language, talk about it in the right way that's non-sensationalistic and educational and based in recovery, you can, you can change lives forever. How many people annually die by suicide? Around the globe, uh, nearly a million people die by suicide and the number is rising. I want to end by talking about where you are in your life today. You've said I'm chronically suicidal. How often do you think about it? And what are the things that you do to be here and speaking around the world and making a difference? It really depends on on, on how I'm feeling mentally, but I, I generally think about it once or twice a month, sometimes a little more. And I always turn to the people in front of me and say, I need help now, whether it's my wife, mostly my wife, uh, or my family, or my friends, or if I'm, if, I'm on a spe- if I'm out there at a speech somewhere and it's just me, I will tell the, the booker or I will tell uh, the people in front of me what I'm going through so that they can support me in it and help me get past it. Uh, I've done that many, many times. Every time I've asked for help, somebody has stepped up to help me. Every time. And I think that's an important lesson to end on that you are not, you are literally not, not figuratively, not cliche. You are literally not alone. And if you ask for that help enough times, somebody is going to be willing to give you that helping hand. And I have one last question um, before we close with our final question. You are continuing the work to save lives. I know part of this is the dream of Annette under the Golden Gate Bridge. Can you tell me briefly about that dream and where it stands today? Absolutely. Um, There have been eight fights since 1939 to raise Annette or rail at the Golden Gate Bridge, and they all failed. After the film The Bridge came out by Eric Steele, my father founded the Bridge Rail Foundation with Dave Dave Hall and Paul Muller. And... The Bridge Rail Foundation and the Psychiatric Foundation of Northern California, founded by Mel Blaustein, have been imperative to the fight to raise a rail at the Golden Gate Bridge. I was on their board. Uh, we fought personally, my dad and I, for the last 12 to 14 years to raise that net at the Golden Gate Bridge. As of January 21, 2021, not one more beautiful soul will ever again die off the Golden Gate Bridge. The net is being built right now. And it will become the largest, greatest, and brightest beacon for suicide prevention all over the world. And right now, bridges, tall buildings, and structures all over the world are using the success of the net um, construction to advocate for barriers all over the world. 
So it's going to have this transformative effect of reduction of access to lethal means globally, and it's going to be phenomenal. And right now we're making a film called The Net about this entire story, an investigative journalistic look into why it took 80 years, but thankful that we're doing it now. Well, I am so glad that you are here with us and incredible that that same bridge you leapt from you now um, are part of this, this net that will save countless lives. What do you hope that people take away from your story, Kevin? I hope they take away the fact that they can be resilient in any pain they, they face and they can always fight that pain to be here tomorrow and every day after that. Awesome. So we end with something called rapid fire. I fire off a sentence and you give me one word and then we're done. Okay. The place you love most in the world. Home. Favorite way to spend a Sunday. With the wife. Biggest vice. Biggest vice. Sugar. Favorite movie. I'm blanking. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Ties in with the next question. Pet peeve. (laughs) Um, When my nose hairs feel like boogers and I can't tell the difference. Favorite quote? Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. That is why we call it the present. In 10 years, I hope to be. Alive and well. Thank you, Kevin. It has been a privilege and an honor. And where can everyone follow you on social media and see what you're up to in the world? The best way is youtube.com slash Kevin Hines. We drop videos every Thursday and Saturday and at Kevin Hines Story on all of the social medias. Thank you, Kevin. And have a great day. It was, it Thanks, was a pleasure. Okay. Take care. As you know by now, Kevin Hines is on a mission to change the way the world thinks about mental illness. And we are excited and grateful to be supporting the Kevin and Margaret Hines Foundation today. Through investments in the most promising research and programs with proven efficacy, they are doing it all. Educational curriculum for youth and teens, professional training programs in suicide prevention, resilience, brain health, and wellness, for the military and community organizations around the world. And among other things, they're using multimedia platforms, which we love, like documentary films and today podcast, to educate people on brain health, wellness, substance use, and suicide prevention. To hear even more about Kevin's story and learn about their life-saving work, you can check them out at kmhinesfoundation.org. That's K-M-Hines, H-I-N-E-S, foundation.org. Thank you for making the time to listen. And as always, I hope you learned something new. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Sound engineering is by Matt Sav at Fairfax Village Studios. And our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read the show notes, and get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 
at All The Wiser Podcasts. Send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.